won't you bow with me and let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we indeed do praise you today. We glorify your name. As we just sang, we want to magnify you. We do magnify you. I love that phrase that, Lord, we want to put the, 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 the magnifying glass on you and see you explode in our mind's eye and in our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that as we now turn to your word and we try to make sense of these wrap-up verses from the Gospel of John, that, God, by your Holy Spirit, that you would illumine our minds, speak to our hearts, and, Lord, that the things that we understand would then help us to leave from this place and here at Northridge Cactus Chapel. Lord, help us to, to apply these things to our lives, to not be afraid to live that which we know to be true. And so, Lord, thanks for the gathered church here. I pray that you'd speak to us now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. amen. So uh, for those of you online at the other campuses and all of you here, let me ask a leading question that I think I know the answer to. How many of you have ever felt in life, ever felt like things are out of control? Raise your hand if that's ever happened to you. Yeah, like if you don't raise your hand, you're not human, right? Like every one of us have felt things out of control at times, whether in culture or in the world as a whole, or most importantly in our personal lives. And the question I want you to wrestle with is what do you do what calms you when things feel out of control? Because one of the things that I've realized in life up to this point is that though there's plenty of things that help me when things feel out of control, one of the key antidotes, at least on a human level when things feel out of control, is to find someone around me that's in control. In other words, out of control can be balanced out by someone around you that's in control. I can remember one of the first times this happened to me. I was a little guy, just about eight years old, I think, and we were on a family vacation. My dad, when I was growing up, worked like crazy, like a lot of parents do, and, and yet dad also believed that the harder you work, the harder you need to play. So every summer, he'd load up our station wagon. For those of you who are younger, that's an oblong vehicle that's about this high. It, it was a precursor to the minivan, and we'd load the station wagon, and we'd just go on a super long vacation, two, three, sometimes even four weeks. And I don't know where we were this particular year, but we were unloading the car into the hotel room, and my sister and my mom were in the hotel room, and my brother and I and my dad were unloading the car. And, and I remember walking into the hotel room carrying a suitcase, and uh, there was a strange man in the room. And, and he had my mom backed into a corner and my mom looked terribly frightened and dad was down in the parking lot. And, and this man was obviously drunk and he was holding up a quarter <laughs> to my mom uh, saying, I wanna give the most beautiful woman in the world this tip. And, and my mom was looking very frightened. And, and at that precise moment, my dad walked in carrying a box. I can still remember walking in carrying a box and my dad is not a big guy, it's genetic. And, and so my, my, my dad walked in the room and he's not a fighter, he's an intellect. And so I'd never seen my dad, you know, raise a fist to anybody. But my dad saw the man, put the box down, walked over to him and said, you're in the wrong room, you need to leave. And the man tried to defend himself and he said, no, no, you don't understand, I'm just trying to offer this beautiful woman a quarter. My dad put his hand on him and said, you're in the wrong room, you're leaving now and he ushered him out of the room. It was one of these moments where in a little boy's mind, for a moment, things seemed terribly out of control, very fearful, and then dad walked in the room. Someone who was in control. 
History shows us that this happens quite often even in culture when Britain was being bombed by the Germans in 1940. Many of you remember, at least have read about this, Winston Churchill gave his very famous we shall never, never surrender speech to parliament. And whereas the Britons felt, or the Brits felt out of control at that time, uh, Churchill helped things get more under control. Same with Martin Luther King Jr. in 1963 when he gave his very famous uh, speech on the, the steps to the Lincoln Memorial, his I Have a Dream speech, whereas at that time there were plenty of African Americans in our nation that felt like through centuries of slavery, things were very much out of control. And he came along and added stability and brought some control. My guess is you have a story similar to this of times where things felt out of control. And though the answer to the question, which brings, brings control, could be varied, you know that there are times where when somebody shows up who brings control, it can tend to turn the tide. And yet here's the deal. Each and every one of these stories, from Churchill to Martin Luther King Jr. to my dad in the hotel room, to any story that you might have, these stories are child's play. They are, they are stories with a small S compared to the larger story going on around you and I in which God through Jesus says, no matter how crazy things get around you, I got this. No matter how out of control you feel, take heart, I'm in control. And so as we wrap up the Gospel of John today, as we look at this final post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, I want you to look at how it all concludes. The post-resurrection appearances as well as the Gospel of John as a whole. Look at how it concludes and the message that's given to you and me. The context here is that Jesus is speaking to Peter and then John's gonna take over and add some narration. So here's how the Gospel of John ends. Jesus is speaking to Peter. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Then John's narration. This, Jesus said, to show by what kind of death Peter was gonna glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to Peter, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple, it's referring to John, was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to Peter that he was not to die, but if it is my will that John remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, if you're tracking with this at all, and I think most of you are, this is a, a really complicated ending to a story, isn't it? I mean, it seems to be like all over the map. It's Peter and then John, and then John trapping this whole thing up. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts going on here. But what we're gonna see right now today is that amidst all the moving parts, there is a consistent thread what I'm gonna call a constant theme to Jesus's interactions and his words here, as well as John's narration. 
And to best see this constant theme that'll be very relevant to you and me today, I want you to notice with me no less than four key movements. We're gonna go through these quickly in these wrap-up verses that contain this constant theme, this consistent thread. So first, notice with me movement number one, and that is that Jesus is saying that he is in control of Peter's life and future. Jesus tells Peter, I'm in control of your life and even your future. This is in the first two verses here. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you would dress yourself and walk where you wanted, but when you're old, you're gonna stretch out your hands and another is gonna dress you and carry you where you do want, not want to go. And then John clarifies what this means. This was Jesus's prophecy on what kind of death Peter would have to glorify God. And then Jesus simply says to Peter, in light of all this, your best bet is to follow me, right? So, so don't miss what's happening here. This is really profound stuff. Jesus is predicting, he's prophesying Peter's entire future and saying that though it's gonna be a really difficult road ahead of you, I got this. God who loves you, me who has saved you is aware because we're God of everything that's gonna happen. It's gonna be a really tough road. You're even gonna die a pretty bad death. Now watch this, but all of it is designed to glorify God to be used for him and his glory. You're gonna get a great reward in heaven, so hang in there and trust in me for the ride. And that's what Jesus is saying to Peter here. And sure enough, this all came true. I mean, it had to be because Jesus said it would, but, but, but Peter had a very rough road. Tradition tells us that he was uh, constantly uh, persecuted by the Roman authorities. He was put in jail, he suffered, and eventually he died being crucified like Jesus did. And yet Peter didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified like Jesus did. So he insisted on being crucified upside down. And so true enough, when, when Jesus said, you'll stretch out your hands and somebody else will guide you, many take that to mean that Peter stretched out his hands this way and died like Jesus did. It was a rough road. But Jesus made it very clear, even in the midst of that really rough road, I'm in control. I got your future, I got your life. We're gonna move on in just two seconds here, but I got one question for you. As you trust and follow Jesus, do you think he has you in the midst of the rough road, yes or no? Yeah, he does. If he can follow Peter in the midst of that difficult, difficult terrain and say, I got this, I'm in control of this, it's all happening for a reason, then my guess is he's got you as well, especially as you trust in him. Now, there's more, much more. Notice a second element to these wrap-up verses in John that carry a very similar theme, and that is that Jesus is in control of John's life and future. So first is Peter, now it's John. Look at what it goes on to say. Now, John is narrating. It says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. That always means John. John referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, following them, the one who also leaned back against him during the supper and asked, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you, which we know was Judas. Now, here it is. And when Peter saw John... He said to Jesus, <laughs> this is funny, Lord, what about this man? I, I, and Jesus said to him, if my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. Now, this is actually kind of humorous. Commentators, Bible experts have not known what to do with this passage. They bicker back and forth on what exactly is happening here. And, and what we aren't clear with is obviously Peter's motivation in asking that question to Jesus, right? 
Like the early church fathers, you know, they were such godly, holy men. They said, well, Peter must have been being charitable in his question here. That's the word they use, charitable. In other words, Peter was concerned about John's future and he wanted to make sure that John wasn't gonna have the rough road that Peter was gonna have. So he's trying to protect John by saying, well, what about him? And along 1,500 years later, John Calvin comes along and says, I don't think that's what Peter was thinking. Calvin says, I think this is, and I quote, a a harmful curiosity. (laughs) In other words, Peter's being curious because he's a bit envious about John. He's basically saying, look, if I got to have a rough road, I hope he does too. Because the disciples were kind of competitive with each other, if you, you know, read about that. And, and so, that, you know, no one knows exactly why, you know, Peter asked this question. We can surmise, but it doesn't matter because here's the point. It's Jesus's response that's the most revealing. Because whether Peter had good motives or bad, Jesus's response is the same. He essentially says, what is that to you? What does he mean by that? He's saying, look, Peter, I just got done saying, I got your life, I got you. And now you're worried about John? Don't worry about John. I got him too. (laughs) Whatever happens to John, I'm in control of his life and future just like I am your life and future. So you let that go, you follow me as John is going to follow me. So a lot of control going on here. He's in control of Peter's life, he's in control of John's life. Now we're not done yet. Two more movements here we want to understand. The third movement is, is that Jesus is in control of his own return and even our misunderstanding of it. Whoa. So verse 23 is a verse that kind of is a hinge verse in this whole gospel because of, it's trying to, to uh, reverse a misunderstanding that the first century church had. John says, so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple, meaning John, was not to die. Yet Jesus didn't say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So this is very interesting. John is saying two things here. The first thing he's saying is that Jesus promised he would come back until I come. 2,000 years were still waiting, but Jesus promised he would come back. He promised that he would usher in the end of the age. He would promise to right right every wrong, wipe away every tear. He promised to take injustice and throw it out the window and bring justice once again to a new heaven and a new earth. Read the book of Revelation. And so he's got this. He's got what's going on right now in the midst of all the craziness because he has a plan. Someday he's going to return. But they misunderstood that. They, in the first century, and you can see this in other parts of the Bible, many of them assumed that Jesus was gonna come back in their lifetime. Sound familiar? <laughs> and they said, well, we're gonna to try to guess the time and the date, and he's gonna come back here, and this is why, because Nero's doing this, and da 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 Joe Biden's doing this, and da 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 So all of a sudden now we, we try to predict all that's going on around us and say, well, Jesus must be coming back. And again, we all know because Jesus said, it's not for you to guess the times and the places or the times and the seasons, not at all. I got this. I'm in charge of my own return. And that's what John is saying here. John is saying, Jesus didn't say that I would live until he returned. He said, if it's my will that I remain until he return, what is that to you? So Jesus is in control of his own return, even our misunderstanding of it. And then finally, a fourth and final movement, and this closes out the entire Gospel of John. Interesting way to close the Gospel is that Jesus is in control of his revelation to the world. What do we mean by that? 
Look at how John closes this gospel. It's actually really profound. John says, this is the disciple, meaning myself, who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony, he means my testimony, is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did where every one of them be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I put it in yellow here so you can see the, the constant theme here that John was bearing witness that he wrote it down that his testimony is true because he saw these things. And he says that, that if everything was to be written, it wouldn't be enough books, but he's assuming that some things were written. And sure enough, John was the last guy to write the gospel. We, th- we believe John wrote this gospel around 90 AD. By that time, Matthew, Mark, and Luke had written their gospels. By that time, Paul had written all of his letters. John had written his three letters. Peter had written his two letters. <laughs> Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews had written that letter. And, and so all this was being put together as God's new revelation called the New Testament. And what's the point? God oversaw that whole process. Jesus said it was gonna come down the pike. Jesus says that after I go, the Holy Spirit will come and will bring to remembrance all that happened. And they wrote this stuff down and God inspired them, illumined them is the word that we use so that they would write the very words of God. So this is telling us here that Jesus was in control even of his revelation to the world. Folks, here's the constant theme throughout these closing verses of John's gospel. And that is that Jesus is in control. He's got this. He's in control of Peter's life and future. He's in control of John's life and future. He's in control of his own return, when and how it will happen. Even when we mess it up, it doesn't sway him at all. And he's even in control of what would eventually become the formation of the New Testament God's word to a lost world. He guided that process. And so let's put this all together. It's our main point today. It's the only thing I want you to notice because it's the most important thing as we wrap up John's gospel today. And that is that it tells us that Jesus is sovereign and providential over everything or to use the slang, he's got this. He is sovereign and providential over everything. And when it comes to your life, he's got this. Now, now why is this so important? I've I've talked about this a little bit before, but we need to have a more extended discussion on it right now. What we're bumping up against right here, folks, is a profound distinction between what the Bible talks about as it describes God and what our modern day world believes about when it comes to the nature of spiritual reality that as you're gonna see in a minute, though similar to who God is in the Bible, is also vastly different. In other words, we're bumping up right now on the difference between what we call providence and fate. Providence and fate. Christians, anybody who reads the Bible, as you'll see in a minute here, understands the providence and sovereignty of God. Simply put, he's got this. Our world today, especially people that don't go to church very much but want to be spiritual, secularists and even naturalists want to believe that there's some sort of influence, that there's some sort of semi-deterministic aspect to this world, otherwise it would be completely purposeless. And so they call it fate. Faith is described by secularists or people, again, who are spiritual but don't read the Bible very much as as this blind, unknowable, semi-deterministic influence that guides what happens in this world. 
Webster's Dictionary actually has a definition of fate. It is, and I quote, an inevitable outcome, a cause by which things in general are believed to come to be or happen as they do. <laughs> you and I hear people talk about fate all the time. I mean, it's really popular today. Have you ever heard somebody say when something happens, they, they say, well, everything happens for a purpose. We've all heard that. You know, you can't cheat fate. You know, we hear people talk about that, that there's some influence behind the universe that makes us feel good because when things happen, there must be some purpose or rhyme and reason to it. But have you ever noticed they don't want to call that God? They certainly don't want to call it the God of the Bible, and they certainly don't want to give it a name like Jesus. And so they want to believe in this deterministic aspect of the universe. But now here's my point. It's without personality, and it's completely unknowable. And doesn't that just sound easy? I, I, I've laughed at this a lot over the years, <laughs> you know, when people kind of believe in fate, because so many people do, you know, it's just fate. And, and I go, you know, it's ironic that nobody ever prays to fate. You ever notice that? Like, dear fate, we thank you for this meal that we're about to receive. And, you know, we're grateful that you provided it fate. In the matchless name of fate, I pray. Amen. Nobody ever prays like that. Nobody ever talks about fate like they have a personal relationship with it. Like nobody ever says, you know, I, I grew up in a home that believed in fate. And when I was in college, I fell away from fate and I rejected fate for a while. But then I, I came back to fate, all glory to fate. Nobody talks like that. No, we reserve words like that for God. We reserve words like that for Jesus. But, but fate, we never talk about like that at all. And here's the real reason why, and I don't mean to step on toes here. I don't, you guys know me, I don't feel myself a very judgmental person, but we have to be honest as we're intellectually wrestling with this. The reason that you can't pray to fate, the reason you can't have a relationship with fate is because it's not real. Fate is fake. There's absolutely no evidence that it's, it exists. There's absolutely no apologetic for it. There's no experiential basis for it. Fate is not real. And what I find ironic about that, this is where it has some teeth, is that, you know, the same people that believe in fate, and I'm not trying to be combative here, I'm really not, but let's just be honest. The same people that tend to believe in fate, again, which are secularists, or people that don't want to, you know, align with any biblical authority, but want to have some spiritual beliefs. The same people that believe that look at you and me, and they say, I can't believe what you believe. You know, I can't believe you believe the Bible and all those stupid stories, you know, and, and it's just fanciful. And, you know, Freud was right. It's just wish fulfillment. And they throw all these darts at us. And I want to look back at them. And I sometimes do and say, well, let's compare what you believe versus what I believe. Because at least I have some evidence based on what I believe. And we'll get to what we believe here in a minute. Let's have some evidence for that, like God's revelation and thousands of years of history and the testimony of billions of people who have banked on this and can give cogent testimony to it and the logic behind it all. You see, I have some evidence here. Give me one shred of evidence that there's this thing called fate that we should rely on and lean on. There is none. Ask your friends that believe in it. It's just safe to believe in fate. Why? Because it doesn't cost you anything. I, I mean, who goes to the church of fate? Who tithes to fate? Who joins a small group for fate? Nobody does. It's an easy thing to believe. And it doesn't cost you anything. It makes you feel good. <laughs> the problem is it's not real. And they think we're living a pipe dream? I don't think so. 
I think the reality is, is that our world wants to believe things that are relatively easy to believe because it kind of makes them feel good, but they're not real. And here's where it gets really insidious, guys, is that there is some truth or overlap to faith or to fate and what we believe. Let me ask you a question. Is there some purpose behind the universe, yes or no? I think so, yeah. Uh, is there a de deterministic influence behind the universe, meaning that, that, that we can't fight it, that it's gonna happen because there's something or someone in control, yes or no? Yeah, Bible affirms that. So, so that's what faith argues. But now watch this. Here's what the Bible does that makes the most sen sense to me. The Bible comes along and describes God in two ways as provident and sovereign. Uh, providence is simply a long-standing theological term, now watch this, that maintains that there is a personal, knowable, intimate, loving, just, and transcendent God behind it all. Don't miss this. Providence adds personality and true knowledge to what fate lacks. Or as we're seeing today, providence inserts Jesus into the equation, amen? It inserts flesh and blood into this idea of that there is someone in control and it's not some unknowable, unprovable entity. It's Jesus who visited this planet, who lived, who had eyewitnesses to what he did and said. And he said, I got this. I'm in control. And if you hang in there, I'm gonna come back and set everything right someday. It's a Jesus who is in control of our lives and future. He's in control of his return. He's even in control when we misunderstand what the Bible says. And he's in control of his revelation to us. I said to you earlier that Webster's Dictionary had a definition for fate. It's that inevitable outcome, a cause by which things in general are believed to come to happen to be as they do. Uh, Webster's Dictionary also has a definition of providence. And wouldn't you know they got it spot on? Look at their definition of providence. Doesn't this sound vastly different than fate? Defines providence as divine guidance and care. God conceived as the power sustaining and guiding human destiny. Whoa, which would you rather have, that or fate? <laughs> you see, that's gonna cost you something to believe that as we'll see in a minute. It's gonna cost you your trust it's gonna cost you your pride. It's gonna cost you your self-sufficiency. I'm going to give all that stuff up if I can have someone in the room who's in control. <laughs> no offense, somebody other than you and me, amen? Somebody that knows what he's doing. That's Jesus. There's a beautiful passage in the Old Testament where uh, David is handing off the reins to his son Solomon. And, and as only wonderful, godly people can do, they were doing it in such a way that they had lots of beautiful prayers to God in this transition, this succession plan for Israel. And look at one of the most beautiful prayers tucked away in the Old Testament in 1 Chronicles 29. David is praying and, and he says this. He says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and on the earth, yours is the dominion. Lord, you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. And in your hand is power and might. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen 
everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. What's fascinating about this passage here is there's actually making a distinction between what theologians call sovereignty and providence. Christians tend to interchange those words, and that's fine. They are getting at the same thing, but they suddenly mean different things. Sovereignty simply means to rule, to reign, to have complete authority over. Providence is kind of a subset of sovereignty. Providence means that you're now caring for and guiding what you're sovereign over. And we see both of those here. Because when you read words like greatness and power and glory and victory and majesty and head over all and you rule over all, that's sovereignty. But then all of a sudden David says, and it's in your hand, God, to make great and to strengthen, say this word with me, everyone. That's providence. The fact that God is, is working out his sovereignty in such a way that it meets us where life is hardest. And you see, once you get this, gang, if you're believing this at all today, then you've just dealt a double blow to fate. Because we begin to understand that, yes, indeed, there is a deterministic aspect of this world. There is an element of control and influence. But it's not blind and unknowable. Quite the opposite. It has a name. <laughs> and it's Jesus. And he's got this. And the reason that this is so important, and you guys already guessed this, is that some of you came in, in here today and your life's on fire. You're in one of those out of control moments. Maybe you're bothered by the pandemic and the influences that it's had on your health or your loneliness. Maybe your marriage has gotten really in trouble. Maybe your kids are hurting and you don't know how to help them. Maybe your personal life is a complete mess. Maybe your work, and you're saying, what work? Oh, maybe that's the problem right there. I mean, there's lots of things we bring into here. And some of you came into here and your life's on fire. And what you need to know, what you need to hear more than anything else today is that, is that even though it doesn't seem like it, he's got this. He's got you. I'm going to share with you guys something you don't know about me. Don't worry. It's not bad. But um, when I was in high school, I was a volunteer fireman. Yeah. It's true. And you're like, how in the world could you be a fireman, pastor? Well, the town I grew up in back in the 1970s didn't have any paid firemen. It was a volunteer fire department, small town outside of Cleveland. And uh, at the age of 16, you could qualify to be a volunteer fireman. And everybody in Chagrin, the whole fire department, was all volunteer. And uh, eventually now, they don't have that anymore. Now they're all paid and society has morphed and grown and matured and all that. But back then, small towns didn't have enough money for a full-time fireman, let alone a bunch of them, so we were all volunteers. The good news is, is that at the age of 16, they didn't send me into burning buildings. In the state of Ohio, there's four classes of firemen, one, two, three, four, and four is a big leap from three, and I was a class four fireman, meaning I was underage and I was not allowed to go into a burning building. And so my job was to unroll hoses and to roll up hoses and to you know, get the equipment and to stay as far away from the fire as possible. But I did get to ride on the truck and I did go to practice every Thursday night. I, more than anything, 16 year olds, I got a badge you know, that said I was a fireman <laughs> for Chagrin Falls. We lived about eight houses from downtown uh, where I grew up, uh, my childhood home. And, and again, you guys would love it. It's so small town America when, the, uh, when there was a fire. And by the way, we had 150 calls back then a year. So, and most of them were all false. I mean, most of them were just the cats in the tree or there, you know, somebody burned their eggs or something like that. You know, so, but, but, but when that happened, you know, they called the fire department and this huge whistle, like a tornado whistle, would blow because we didn't have cell phones back then. And, and, and when you heard the whistle blow, all the volunteer firemen came running. 
And again, I lived eight houses from downtown and my brother and I were volunteer firemen. So we'd be in the middle of the dinner, the whistle would blow, my dad would go, go. And we'd be running down Franklin Street, you know, to the fire department. And, uh, and, and we'd be the first ones there. We'd get our uniforms on and everybody else would get there. We'd jump on the truck. And again, usually it was nothing. But once in a while, it was huge. I only remember one real fire in the two years that I was a fireman, but it was one you'd never forget. Happened at night, it was just outside the village limits and there was a fully involved house fire. It's one of these big houses on the hill and the thing had just gone up. And we got there and I, I was just overwhelmed at that moment because I just saw this huge fire. When you see it on TV, you're immune to it, but when you see it in real, it's, it's scary as all get out. And what made matters worse, and I wanna be careful how I say this, is that, did I mention they were all volunteer firemen? And, and, and so watching these guys run around, you know, at practice, I didn't mind. But now that this was the real thing, I wonder who's really in control here? Because this doesn't feel, I feel like we've got a bunch of Barney Fifes trying to put out a fire right now. <laughs> and, 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 and it just felt out of control as I watched these guys who were lawyers and doctors and, you know, and, and city workers trying to play firemen. It just felt very chaotic. But then Chief Phillips showed up on the scene. Chief Phillips would eventually be the first full-time paid fireman in the city of Chagrin Falls. And eventually would go on to transfer it from volunteer to professional. And Chief Phillips, we all knew, even though he was a volunteer at that time, knew what he was doing. Jack Phillips was a fireman. And as soon as Jack Phillips showed up in his, in his car, and, and thing, we knew that things were gonna be okay because he started barking orders here and barking orders there and he oversaw the whole thing. And sure enough, this fire took 12 hours to put out. I'll never forget it. It was not till morning <laughs> that we were all leaving. But by the time we were done, it was out. Nobody got hurt or died. And Chief Phillips made sure that everything worked as planned. You see, some of you right now have a life that's on fire. We all have times when fire rages in our lives and things seem out of control. And what you need to know, I don't mean to be trite about this, but Jesus Christ is the chief of the department and Jesus Christ is in control. I actually love this analogy because, you know, there's three levels of fires going on in your life right now. Some of you are just really upset about what's going on in the world, right? Like you read about what's happening in Israel right now or all the injustices in the world. I mean, it's just awful. And, and so you, you, things feel very out of control for you. Your life is on fire. And, and then the second level might be the concern you have for our nation, I don't know if you noticed, but maybe things morally aren't what they used to be in our nation. And, and so you're very concerned about, you know, the, the, the moral fabric of our nation and that economically and politically, you just sense things are on fire and out of control and it feels very chaotic. And then the third level of fires in your life are the personal ones that we went over earlier. So again, your marriage, your family, your work, your emotions. I mean, things can feel so out of control. <laughs> Tell me if this isn't true. And I want to be careful I say this. There are times when things are on fire in your life, in the world and culture, in your personal life, and you have all these people around you trying to put it out, and they all feel like a bunch of volunteer firemen, amen? Again, I'm not here to denigrate politicians. I'm not here to denigrate societal leaders, and I'm not denigrating your therapist. I'm not doing any of that. But there are times, at least I feel like, that I look at what people are trying to do, and I just feel like we got a bunch of Barney Fifes trying to put out fires, and I'm not sure they know what they're doing. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. Jesus comes along and he says, I got this. We're gonna put this fire out. I'm in control. 
And though, like he says to Peter, the robe might not be easy, though you might have to die first and join me in heaven, don't worry, I got this. And if you will trust me and not yourself and all these volunteers going on around you, we can get through this. That's how the gospel of John ends. It ends on a note of Jesus saying, I got this. I got Peter. I got John. I got my return. I got my revelation. And I got you. Are you willing to trust him? I hope you are. Amen. Last thought, and then we'll be done. I know some of you think, again, I love you so much. I really do. And I love your cynicism. Some of you are sitting there right now or at home, and you are. You're thinking, but Jamie, you know what? When things get really, really bad, I mean, you know, are you going to say this to people in Somalia? Are you going to say this to people suffering in China? Are you going to say this to the inner city of Phoenix? Are you going to say it to people who die of heat stroke this summer? I mean, come on, Jamie. Is this stuff really real? I'm matching your intensity right now that you feel. And, uh, and, and I get it. I think the same way. I, I sit there and go, oh, come on. Does he really have this? The answer is yes. Because you only got two choices. This is a fallen world and things stink. They get really bad. It's been turned over to Satan. This world is not our home. And things can get really bad in this fallen world. God knows that. He's already told us that in his word. He's even told us how and why it got that bad. And you only have two choices when the fallen world rears its ugly head. Think about it. You can either say, no, God, I'm not even going to think of you or trust you. I don't know if I believe in you anymore. And take the reins yourself. As Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? (laughs) Or you can say, God, I don't understand this. It's overwhelming to me. I have no idea how and why you could really handle this and have it. But you said you do, and so I trust you. Those are your only two choices. Reading a historical novel right now, I'm not done with this, so I want to tell you what it is, because I hope it ends well, but I'm reading a historical novel right now from World War II about a family that was fleeing the Russians and the Germans, and this family had just been through so many awful, terrible, horrific things. Children dying, starvation. I mean, again, I think you guys know this. There are people in the world that have a lot worse than us, and this family is fleeing all of that, and it's a beautiful story of how the wife is clinging to God in the midst of it. And even though she's seen, seen horrific things, she's saying, I, I know he's still good. And I don't know how, but he's got this. And the husband has a different tune. You won't have trouble picturing this. He's just mad and angry. <laughs> but all this happened to him, and he says, there could be no God. And it's kind of this little battle going on. I, I don't know how it ends. I hope, I hope eventually the, the guy gets it. But right now, the, the woman gets it too. And some of you go, how could a woman believe like that? Corey Ten Boom was put in a Nazi concentration camp in World War II. She saw her sister Betsy die in her arms, saw her parents go in and never come out. Corey Ten Boom saw atrocities none of us would ever hope to see. And when she came out of it, she said, here's my experience. There is no pit so deep that Jesus Christ is not deeper still. The Nazis could not dig a pit so deep that my Savior was there as well. You see, I believe that for you. You have to believe that. Again, your only other choice is to say, no, I don't believe it. Get out of the ring. Take the bull by the horns yourself, which that's not going to work very well. I don't have all the answers to you as to why you're going through what you're going through. I have one, and that's that he's with you, and he loves you, and he says he's never going to forsake you, so don't you forsake him. He's got this because he's got you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your amazing, unmatchable grace 
And that, Lord, even our lives seem chaotic, even when our culture seems chaotic, even when the world seems chaotic, you're in control. And, Lord, it does take a lot of faith to believe that. That's why faith is not for the faint-hearted. It's not for the weak. Faith is for those of us who are willing to dig deep and trust you, even when we don't see how or why things are the way they are. And, Lord, it's faith that separates the men from the boys and women from the gals when it comes to spirituality. And, Lord, it's faith that I'm after in my life, and I know these dear people are as well. And so, Lord, for some of us today, this is exactly what we needed to hear, to to take our faith that we have and not place it in the world, not place it in ourselves, not place it in technology or culture, but to place it squarely and firmly upon you and your son, Jesus. I love the fact that you've ended this gospel by saying that Jesus is in control of John. He's in control of Peter. He's in control of his return. He's in control of our messed up theologies in control of even his revelation to us. So we lean on that, Lord. We lean on him, and we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.